This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. Welcome to the Austin Chronicle Show. My name is Kim Jones, and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. So at the Chronicle, I have occasion to work with interns and young reporters who are trying to unpack complex issues in their stories. And when we deal with that, I tell them, don't use fancy words, don't overcomplicate it. In short, talk to me like I'm an idiot. And that is exactly what I'm going to ask of my two guests today. Talk to me like I'm an idiot, because the topics we're tackling might be unfamiliar, they're definitely complicated, and they're maybe kind of intimidating too. So first up in the program, Austin Chronicle staff writer Austin Sanders is here to give us the play-by-play of an especially eventful week at City Hall. And later in the program, food editor Jesse Cape is going to explain to us how to shabu shabu. So first up, Austin, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me again, Kim. So you're here to talk about land development code. What what happened this week? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad that you introduced the topic that way because it is like really dense and intimidating. But like I always tell my friends and stuff that don't really follow this stuff as closely, it's so important. Like it's going to have such a big impact. If you plan to live in Austin for 10 years or more, it's going to have such a big impact on your life because what the land development code does is it basically uh, determines what kind of buildings can be built um, in what parts of the city. Um, and our code hasn't been updated um, uh, since 1984. Uh, the mayor sometimes uh, uses this analogy that it's like a computer running on an operating system from the 80s. So obviously there's a lot of inefficiencies. Uh, it makes building things difficult and complicated. Um, and that can translate to higher costs, uh, higher costs to build structures, which means Um, Your rent payment, your mortgage payments can be more expensive. So that's one of the major goals of the the, uh, LDC, Land Development Code, uh, is to make living in a house, uh, different types of houses uh, in Austin, more affordable. And this week was a real milestone because it's the first time in this eight-year process um, that, you know, began in, in uh, 2012 uh, and went through Code Next and faltered and was resurrected. It's the first time the city council has actually voted on a version of the code. Uh, that doesn't mean that we have adopted a new land development code. Um, like other uh, zoning cases, the, the council has to vote uh, three times, has to approve it uh, three times before it's actually adopted. Uh, but so this was uh, on Wednesday was the first of those three votes, um, which uh, again, you know, after all of the turmoil and the political debate um it was it was quite a quite a milestone for the that's, city that's honestly kind of staggering to hear you lay it out so plainly because we've been hearing about this you know uh, especially with code next which really seemed to kind of shred the city into into different factions um yeah it's shocking to hear that this is the first time we've actually even reached that point in the timeline yeah there's been other kind of like adjacent votes uh that inform the, the the code, but this is the first time um, the council has had a draft that they were able to vote on. Obviously, Code Next went through three drafts before it died, but the council never ended up uh, uh, voting on those. So this, this was the first one. Um, and unsurprisingly, 
during the three days that the council met before they voted um, on uh, the first reading of the code, we saw many of the same debates that, uh, like you said, tore apart the city through uh, Code Next um, were, were prominent uh, uh, during this debate on the, the, the first draft as well. Okay, what are some of the sticking points? Well, the biggest one um, remains to be the transition areas, the transition zones. Can you give us just a real quick? Sure, sure. Basically what those are is so like the closer you get to downtown, um, the higher density development you have. So you have the bigger uh, uh, sky rise type buildings. Uh, The further out you get from that, you have your more like traditional single family neighborhoods. In between that, the city wants to promote um, uh, what is called missing middle housing. So those are um, in between the sky rises and the single family home. So you might have like um, a three uh, a three unit uh, uh, housing structure that is sized similar to a single family home, but obviously can accommodate three families, um, townhomes, cottage courts, all of these different kinds of uh, housing that uh, would grow the city's housing stock, the number of housing units available, um, in, in theory, kind of make prices more affordable over time. And so the big fear um, uh, about transition zones is that um, they will uh, introduce, you know, great too much density in these interior established neighborhoods uh, and that'll have a kind of a detrimental uh, impact on quality of life for the people that have lived there for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll you know make traffic worse, um, make uh, incentivize um, demolitions of older uh, housing units that may be more affordable because they're older. Uh, it'll incentivize developers to tear those down and build newer expensive housing units. These are the fears of um, what are what's commonly referred to a, a group called preservationists. They want to preserve uh, existing housing stock um, in the city. Um, Is part of the fear also that um Demolitioning old houses and building newer properties is going to drive out people who are already in the neighborhoods who can't. I yeah, mean, for basically sure. Gentrification. Gentrification. Yes. Yeah, basically okay. that's what's happened um, in you know the east side of Austin over mm-hmm. the past thirty years or more. Um, it, it's been um, these traditional neighborhoods um, and the people that have lived in them, primarily black and brown Austinites, have been displaced from those homes by expensive development. Um, the other side of that argument is that um, the reason that when that displacement happens that you know people don't have anywhere else to go uh, because there's not enough housing um, uh, in Austin. It's, it's just a simple supply and demand calculation. There's a high demand for housing in Austin and just not enough supply to make up for it. So by promoting this missing middle housing type Mm -hmm. where you have a lot where you might have a parcel of land where you built one house, well, you can build three or five houses. Obviously, you're going to grow your housing supply and hopefully um, uh, level out prices and make it easier for people um, if they are displaced to not have to actually leave the city or their neighborhood. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's, that is the theory, at least. That's the theory, right. And again, this is the big sticking point. There's a lot of skepticism um, from the preservationists that that would actually uh, happen. Um, uh, and is it fair to say that the, the preservationist block is council members Alter, Poole, Tovo, and 
Who did I leave out? Uh, Togo. Kitchen. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So yeah, those and that was really reflected um, in what we saw in the council meetings this week. So basically, what they were doing was um, they had a draft of uh, the 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 code text and the zoning map that worked together uh, that have been modified since uh, October when they were first released. Staff has modified them. The Planning Commission has modified them. And now the the council got their chance to modify the work uh, through amendments. So each council member brought their own amendments uh, to try and you know, make it better as they saw it, um, and then they vote on them. And what we saw uh, time and time again was um, an amendment either passed or failed on a 7-4 vote. Uh, The 7 in the majority are generally seen as pro-density, uh, uh, less skeptical of um, uh, the, the transition zones and the kind of stuff that we had talked about. Uh, and then the four are the, the, the council members in the minority that, that you listed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that we've seen throughout um, uh, this debate um, uh, through, through the Land Development Code uh debate. We've seen that time and time again, and it it definitely really was a a big takeaway from this vote that um, the majority, they basically have their will uh, on uh, the council, and they uh, can move forward with how they want to adopt this code. So what has been the the reaction to this first vote? Well, the the biggest reaction thus far um, has been a lawsuit that was filed less than 24 hours just on Thursday morning. Presumably than, they were ready to go. They were ready. This, right, yes. right. This It's a it's a, a familiar cast of characters uh, who are plaintiffs uh, in this uh, lawsuit who they, they sued the city because the city um, is not allowing uh, individual property owners to protest the zoning change through the comprehensive rewrite. So it's kind of easy to get lost in the weeds here, but mm-hmm. I'll do my best to make it simple. Basically, anytime a uh, a, a property in the city is rezoning, um, the neighboring landowners uh, can come together. Uh, 20, if 20% of them come together and say, this is not good for our neighborhood, we don't like it, city council, you shouldn't allow it, they can file what's called a valid petition a valid protest. Uh, And if they do that, the city council has to um, uh, uh, vote with a three-fourths majority to approve the zoning case rather than just a simple majority. So we're talking about nine votes to approve a zoning case versus six votes. This is important because the city's lawyers say you can't do that with a comprehensive land development code rewrite. It would be it, unworkable mm-hmm. um, when you're trying to, uh, um, you know, change the zoning of an entire city, the entire map. Um, everyone would be able to file a protest, um, and it would just never get done. Um, they say that uh, because the um, the zoning changes are being are applying throughout the city, it's equitable, and thus an individual property owner doesn't have this right um, uh, to to protest the change. Obviously, this group of homeowners who filed the lawsuit Thursday morning, they disagree. Um, And it should be said that the city's legal opinion has not been tested in court. Mm -hmm. Um, That's just their interpretation of the law. But there has not been any court that has um, actually settled that matter. So we could actually see that happen. 
with this lawsuit filed by this uh, group of homeowners. And and again, this goes back to the 7-4 votes that we saw um, um, on uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday when the council was deliberating. If If the court rules in favor of these homeowners, that majority won't really mean anything anymore uh, because the council would need nine votes uh, to approve the final version of uh, the land development code, which means the four council members you you listed, Tovo, Kitchen, Pool, Alter, um, they would suddenly have a lot more leverage uh, mm-hmm. in the debate and, you know, uh, 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 pres- presumably would be able to kind of throw that weight around to kind of win on some of these issues that they were consistently losing on um, in the first reading vote. Right. It changes the numbers game. Right. Of course, that's really hypothetical. The the court hasn't responded to the lawsuit. The um, uh, city issued a statement uh, to me not long afterward, basically just saying, this is our interpretation of the law. We stand by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'll we'll kind of see what happens uh, uh, from here. But um, it, it could really throw a wrench um, in, in the plan because the council, we had talked earlier about how long this process has dragged on. And the majority on the council, they're ready to be done with it. Yeah, they, they intend to vote um, on the third and final reading like in March. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they really want to to get through this, the, the remaining work, the second vote, and then the third vote and have this new code in place by the spring. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You referenced a, a familiar cast of characters behind this lawsuit. And it does seem we see sort of the regular names um, sometimes in our own paper popping up as uh, dissenting some of what's happening at council. You're at these endless meetings you're seeing you know Austin regular Austinites who are who are showing up and are choosing to speak what is your impression of who is actively engaged in this do do people feel like the city is doing enough to reach out to them and yeah. invite them to be part of this process yeah I mean I think it depends on who you're you're, you're talking to like uh, the preservationist side that we've talked about, they have been really adamant about trying to get the city to slow down and take in more public input. Um, there's been a lot of a lot of meetings and a lot of public input gathered um, throughout this process. But I think it, it is important to, to consider who is providing that input. And, you know, I don't think there's any doubt that most of the people at these public hearings, I was at one on Saturday that lasted most of the day, most of the speakers there are older white homeowners, um, and we're in a city that is at least half, uh, a little more than that, I think, renters, um, and obviously a growing um, African-American and uh, uh, Hispanic population, as well as other minority groups. Uh, and it's important to point out that those voices are not always as represented um, in these public hearing settings. There are a number of reasons uh, for that. Um, uh, generally, the wealthier you are, the easier it is for you to take off of work or get childcare or get down to city hall to downtown uh, to where most of these meetings are held um, and so that's an important point I think to understand about when we talk about who is um, speaking out against um, uh, the, the code and the changes that it would bring uh, because obviously when you look at the city council um, the, the 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 members of color are uh, 
they are in favor of this. Um, they want this to move forward, uh, and they represent districts that uh, are predominantly people of color, uh, and they speak for those constituents. They were elected by them, and so uh, I think it's it's important to consider that when we again when we talk about who is um, uh, speaking out or speaking for or against the the code rewrite. Sure. Mm-hmm. So what is next? Yeah. So like I said, first of three votes. Uh, we've got two more. So basically what all of the amendments that were uh, passed um, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, staff, uh, the city staff, the planning people, the land development code team, they're going to take all of that as recommendations and get to work on changing the code, changing the map to uh, accommodate that. Like just as one example, um, one of the amendments that was passed um, uh, by uh, uh, Councilmember Natasha Harper-Madison, who represents District 1, the east side, um, was to um, task staff with exploring ways to integrate commercial development into interior neighborhoods to promote walkability. So uh, people can walk to a grocery store or a restaurant or a coffee shop instead of getting in their car and driving to those places. It's a pretty vague uh, instruction for the staff, but staff is going to have to interpret that and figure out how they can change the map, the zoning map, to say, okay, we have a bunch of residential houses here. What would happen if we allowed commercial development here? How would it change the map? How do we need to change the code to facilitate that? So staff is going to do a whole bunch of that kind of work, and then they're going to produce a new um, a, a zoning um, code and map, which will be delivered in late January. Uh, council will see it and look at it, and the typical people will object or say this is great. And then they'll take a, they'll deliberate and take another vote in February. And then the same thing happens. So staff will get a bunch of more recommendations, uh, and they'll go back and they'll change the code and the map again. And then at this phase neighborhoods will be able to submit their own maps to say this is what we think it should look like staff will compile it all together council will meet for a final time look at all of it do a final vote in march and then we would have an adopted new land development code all right well it's a lot of information to unpack you've done a wonderful job of talking to me like i'm an idiot i really appreciate it this makes a lot more sense now (laughs) no problem and uh we will have you back to walk us through the process as it goes out through winter and into the spring thanks austin exciting yeah and now we're going to delve into something maybe a little bit more fun and a little bit more hands-on so I would like to welcome to the studio our food editor, Jesse Cape, who is going to talk to us about a really interesting hands-on experience you can have in Austin right now. Jesse, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I uh, asked you to come in and talk about a place that was recently voted by our Austin Chronicle readers, the number one best restaurant in Austin. And I think a lot of that has to do with the experience and the sort of, you know, off the beaten path uh, thing that you get to get into. So why don't I let you explain it? So uh, the restaurant she's talking about is Dip 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 Tatsia. Um, but what they're doing is a certain style of dining called Shabu Shabu Dining. Um, uh, and it's essentially it's hot pot, which has it's it's a long history. And if you get bored and need to read about something, it's a great way to spend time on the Internet. Um, also videos and videos. <laughs> yes. Uh, so hot pot essentially breaks down into a pot of boiling, simmering broth. Very flavorful. 
and all of the different things uh, that you can dip into it. Um, tons of different meats, tons of different vegetables. There's also, you know, uh, dumplings and, and such like that. So the possibilities are basically endless. Um, and these types of restaurants uh, have definitely been in Austin uh, before now. Um, but this is kind of the first time that uh, it's had such like a, a big stage to play on. And part of that is uh, the people that are doing it, Raman Tatsia, um, uh, the, sorry, the Tatsia crew, which is Raman Tatsia, uh, Domo Aligato, and a couple other ones. Um, so it's highly stylized, all of that stuff. But essentially, you walk into this place um, or any of the places that do the hot pot, and uh, for someone who's never done it before, it can seem intimidating, but it's actually one of the most fun uh, ways to eat, um, and and it's very personalized. So depending on which place you go um, or what preferences you have with your with your dinner, um, you can really get a group of friends together and just kind of learn how to do this together and make it just a fully immersive experience. Mm-hmm. So you are really designing your meal. If you're the kind of person who likes to go to a sandwich shop and get all of the extras and all of the condiments and make it right. your own, yes, this is, this is an interesting experience for you. Right. You know, sometimes it is really nice to just kind of go into a restaurant on a date or with your best friend and just sit down and have them kind of tell you what you're going to eat and how to eat it and all those things. Um, with this situation, it's more like, okay, here's your options. Go. And you pick <laughs> whatever you want and uh, you learn how to cook it, which I think also one interesting thing about this whole dining experience, too, is it really gives you an appreciation for the different levels of quality on the ingredients. Um, one thing uh, in particular I talk about uh, in the paper this week is uh, Wagyu beef and how it's kind of become this situation where everybody thinks that it's just this one thing when it's actually a tiered grading system of beef. Um, So that's one reason you want to have these paper thin slices of meat, Um, which while we're at it is why it's called Shabu Shabu Dining. Um, It's an onomatopoeia for the way it sounds when those meat pieces are swishing through Mm -hmm. the broth. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. That sounds like a really fun, immersive experience that sort of taps a lot of different senses. It does. You know, it's you're going to get a big waft of broth to your face, which sounds like a really uh, terrible thing, but it's awesome. Um, It's, you know, open your sinuses. I think also this has got to be one of the ways, uh, the most creative ways to not eat carbs, interestingly, (laughs) because you've got all your rice and it's beautiful rice and you've got your noodles and they're beautiful noodles. But really, the whole goal here is filling up on crazy combinations of meats and vegetables um, and that broth, which just the longer you're dipping, the longer you sit there, just gets more and more and more flavorful. I thought it was funny in your your piece this week, you you encourage people to wear stretchy pants if you're embarking on the hot pot experience, which I think a lot of people just figure, oh, you mean I'm just like, I've got some chopsticks and I'm dipping, you know, something into broth. That's got to be super light and I'm not going to fill up on that at all but you're saying that is actually not the experience no way the thing is is if you imagine this is a cast iron pot no matter where you go it's a cast iron pot of 
borderline boiling liquid and you're dipping things in it, it's not exactly a to-go situation. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of inherently encouraged to just eat far past the point of where you would have normally stopped, which I guess is not a great thing in some cases, but that might just be me and my lack of self-control. So this is an experience that you're taking your time with. You're luxuriating in it. Are you? Is there a single... I'm still trying to sort of wrap my head around the the um just the logistics of it is it a single pot does everybody Mm -hmm. get their own so yes so traditionally it's one shared pot on the table which to be honest has always kind of worried me because you know you see how people eat and it's not always ideal to share something with some people um you're saying it's gross you know some people are gross eaters um (laughs) Manners have gone by the wayside in terms of dining to some extent. However, uh, with this particular situation, everybody gets their own pot, which is not only cool because there's, you know, different flavors that you can choose from and somebody might have a vegan broth and someone wants all of the pork bone in theirs. Uh, It's cool because you can double dip, you can triple dip, you can eat it and re-dip, whatever you want, and it's just your germs. Mm -hmm. It's great. It's it's, it's part of the... This is a totally customizable totally experience. Totally customizable. Yeah. Yep. Jesse, something I think that is really interesting uh, and about you, and I think that your our regular readers uh, will start to you know see characters who who show up in your writing, and one of them is your son. <laughs> and I think when people hear about something like Dip Dip Dip, best new restaurant, you assume this is going to be super shishi, mm-hmm. upscale, uh, something for grownups only. Right. You took your kid. How was that experience? Well, you know, he's uh, not shy about giving his opinion on pretty much anything. So he's actually a really good resource for me. Um, But it's it's always cool to see how um, a child reacts because sometimes they have they're not as jaded as or cynical as we are. They're not as afraid to make a little bit of a you know, joke out of things. And and they're not afraid to experience new things as much as we are sometimes. And so with this kind of thing, I'd actually been once to the restaurant before. So I took him um, and I was still kind of like, you know, a little awkward and things and had to remember what I was doing. But he just jumped right in. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's cool, too, because it's things that you wouldn't necessarily think that a child would be into eating. but because of the interactive nature of it and like getting to use the different tools and getting to, I mean, dips, come on. Uh, there's dips all over the table. So that's kind of neat too, to watch uh, somebody experience flavors that you definitely don't have at home for the most part. I mean, even if uh, your family makes traditional Japanese food, like the flavors that some of these restaurants are using are incredibly complex and, uh, you know, generations old and like, it's insane. <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems like a, a great way to sort of re-inject a sense of play and yeah. sense of humor in dining. It doesn't have to be all fancy and, and stuffy. No, it's it's nice to get a little a little weird and messy sometimes. Absolutely. That's where the best conversations happen. Well, if you want to know more about the Shabu Shabu experience, uh, you can find that in this week's issue, uh, which is on stands now. It's the cover story. Uh, Jesse, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, that is going to do it uh, for us this week. I also want to thank our other guest, Austin Sanders, uh, who wrote an awful lot about the land use issue this week in the issue. Uh, as he was leaving today, he, he shook his fist and said, I didn't even get to talk about parking. So if you want to know about parking and more of the ins and outs of land use, uh, that can also be found in this week's issue, available at austinchronicle.com and in stands all around town. Uh, I also want to thank our engineer, Evan Hearn, for putting up with us today. And to Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson, as ever, for writing our theme music.